All right, let's take our Bibles, go to the book of Romans chapter number 7, Romans chapter number 7, and uh, I, I truly hope that uh, all of you are doing well here today. I hope that everyone in our live stream audience is doing uh, well also. Uh, I'm sure that you are all very well aware that uh, we the next few weeks we definitely need to pray for our country. We've got an election coming up that in my lifetime, I've never seen an election that I truly felt had more ramifications on our life and our future than this one coming up. I'm sure that there will be elections that will be even uh, greater as far as magnitude and importance uh, unless uh, as a nation we just continue to spiral downward toward humanism and liberalism and anti-Godism. I made that word up, but it certainly, I think you know what I'm saying. So um, I'm not uh, here to promote any candidate, but I am here to promote the Word of God. And uh, when it comes to the election, there are some clear, clear differences between the principles of the Word of God that are the most important uh, as opposed to the principles that the uh, many uh, Americans and uh, much of the liberal news media tries to tell us are important. Let me say this. I, I believe that the rights of the unborn are more important than the rights of women. And uh, the biblical values of the sanctity of marriage and the biblical teachings against perversions and so forth and um, not only that, but also how we as a nation treat the nation of Israel. And if you're familiar with the Word of God, really there is only one clear vote that can be made. And I certainly uh, do not, I cannot even fathom how any professing Christian could vote on the liberal side of any of these tickets knowing that um, the ramifications of what's going to happen. Uh, I want our economy to do good. Uh, I want the poor to be taken care of and people who cannot afford health care. I want them to have health care for all of their preconditions and so forth. But there are some things that are at the top of the list. What we need as a nation, folks, is we need to get back the blessings of God. And there are some clear things. You read about Nineveh, you read about Sodom and Gomorrah, you read the history of the Roman Empire and every empire that has ever existed in human history, and you find the same characteristics that we're seeing in America today. And short of God getting hold of his people's hearts and us getting our relationship with him straightened out, there is no hope for America getting straightened out. And so uh, I've said this for many, many years that most nations get the leader that they deserve. And that scares me just a little bit. And so um, anyhow, let's pray. Uh, Romans chapter number seven, I want to speak to you here this morning. We're just going to read part of our text. We're going to be studying the entire chapter of Romans seven today and then next Sunday And we're going to see some things that I believe are extremely vital for our understanding in the Christian life. But we're going to start out today with kind of a foundation. And what I'm going to be talking to you about next week will really have very little value to you if you don't truly understand 
what we're going to be talking about here today. Romans chapter number 7 will begin in verse number 14. The Bible says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Uh, We see right off the get-go a contrast between the law of God and the nature of man. Verse number 15, For that which I do, I allow not, For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. Almost sounds like Paul's having a little bit of schizophrenia going on in his life. And he continues in verse number 16, If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Notice how Paul was very conscientious to put that parenthetical statement in there. For I know that in me, now if we were to leave that out as Christians and say, for I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, we would be denying the good thing which is Jesus Christ living inside of us. But Paul is making it clear that it is in my flesh that there dwelleth no good thing. And then he says, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that, I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law. This is a law he's talking about, not like the the Ten Commandments. This isn't a written law. The law that he's referring to would be uh, on a spiritual level, kind of like the, the, the scientific law of gravity. It's a natural law. You know, there, there are certain natural laws that you cannot break. You can break the Ten Commandments, but you try to break the law of gravity, the law of gravity is going to break you. So this is a natural law or a spiritual law that Paul's saying, I find this law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. If you're like me, I have, I have days, sometimes even weeks, where I feel like I'm doing good spiritually. Do you ever, you ever had a day where you just felt close to God? Isn't that wonderful? To just wake up in the morning and it's like God's just there. And it's not like that every day. It doesn't matter if you are keeping your checklist. I mean, you can be reading your Bible faithfully. You can be praying faithfully. And there are times where you just wake up some morning and you just feel like that God is nowhere near. And then then our, our, our mood and our spirit and our attitude of God not being very present, it starts reflecting in how we treat one another, how we behave and so forth. There's just times where it's not always easy to, to be spiritual. Most of the times it's, it's never easy, but there are days where it feels like it's easy. We're happy. Somebody does something to cross us and we just go, oh, that's okay. No big deal. I mean, we are determined that we're going to have a good day and we don't let anybody mess up our good day. And then the next day, some little old thing happens and we let it mess up our good day. And then we end up messing up their good day. 
You know what I'm describing? I'm describing that something that every single person that's listening can relate to. It's just the law of spirit. It's the law of sin is what it is. And we cannot deny it. And so Paul says in verse 22, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The flesh doesn't delight in the law of God, but the inward man does. And then he says in verse 23, But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And so we've already painted a very frustrating picture. And frustration is a form of anger. And so we go through this life, and ultimately, we're going to have to battle this frustration. Not only does my sin nature sometimes get frustrated with your sin nature, that happens from time to time, but every day of my life, I have to experience the frustration of my new nature battling and struggling with my old nature. The war is something that takes place inside of me and inside of you, and it's not a war that there's no peace treaty in which we can find relief from this war, except for verse number 24, where Paul says, O wretched man that I am. The word I am is present tense, is it not? Paul's not describing what he was like before his experience on the Damascus Road when he found Jesus Christ in his life, or rather when Jesus found him. He's not describing what he used to be like. He just described what he is like. And he was like that up until the day that he died. Just like you and I as believers will be like that. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And we'll talk more about the answer to that question in next week's message. Let's have another word of prayer before we get into the message. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the teaching that the Holy Spirit gives us through the Apostle Paul. Lord, uh, Paul certainly experienced these things as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's teaching us. He's mentoring us. He's trying to help us. And Father, we pray that you would bless this time as we preach and teach the Word of God. May our thoughts and may our words be clear and concise. May they accomplish what you want to accomplish here this morning. We pray that you would receive the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. And so our two-part message starts today on discovering our true identity. Now this is a, uh, this is something that we hear about in modern pop psychology. We hear about it in, uh, in modern pop Christian psychology about discovering our true identity. Uh, one thing that I will say this is that a person saved or lost will always behave somewhat consistently with how they perceive themselves to be. Now, if you're like me, there have been many times that I perceived myself to be one way, and uh, I'm not the way that I thought that I was. Uh, I've had I've joked with um, my wife and my daughter. You know, they they uh, I'll say, well, I'm I'm kind of like this, and they'll be going, no, you're not. 
And then they'll say something that's just total opposite. It's like, I don't see myself that way, but other people do. We don't always see ourselves the way that we are. And so before I walked up to this pulpit, the Holy Spirit reminded me of a verse that I really didn't study or put part of this message, but I think it's good to know. And I'm going to read it to you out of the book of Proverbs chapter 18 and verse number 2, where Solomon said, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. Now, when we talk about discovering our true identity, we're not talking about self-analysis. We're not talking about discovering who we are. And how many times have I heard in recent years people saying, well, I need to be true to myself. Do you know that the entire LGBT community, many of, uh, many of them, not the entire, but many of which are professing Christians, And you know what they have said? They've said kind of what sounds righteous is they say, well, you know what? I need to be true to myself, and I can't be true to God unless I'm true to myself. You know what? That's just just so anti-biblical and anti-God. We're going to see here, and we've already read what the Apostle Paul says, that there are some things that we are by nature that, listen, you don't want to be true to yourself. There are certain things, the way that I am, you know, people say, well, that's just the way that I am. And, and to which I want to say, well, stop. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that anymore. Don't be that way anymore. Because ultimately, and I don't want to get to next week's message, ultimately, as Christians, we want to be like Jesus Christ. And we are one day, praise the Lord, not this side of the rapture, but when the rapture takes place, According to the Bible, we will become brand spanking new. Now, when we got saved, we became new creatures in Christ Jesus. A lot of the modern Bibles change that to a new creation. It's not true. We're still just creatures. Just creatures. I think Ernest T. Bass said, he called me a creature. Well, that's what we are. We are new creatures but we're still creatures. When we get our new body that's like Christ, then we will be new creations. But we still have this old man living inside of us. And so when we discover our true identity, it brings the question that all of us need to answer is, why is it so hard to do right? I mean, I know know so much more about right and wrong today than I did 20 years ago. I know so much, 20 years ago, I knew so much more about right and wrong than I did 20 years before that. But I still have a hard time doing right. How many would say amen to that? It's not easy. It's difficult. Well, if we're going to answer this question, there's a couple of things that we need to realize, first of all. First, we need to understand that, are you ready for this? Everyone has a hard time doing right. Now, I said that because uh, if, you have a, if you have a sensitive conscience, then you may get to thinking that you're the only one that has a hard time. I got right with the Lord about 30, 35 years ago, and I remember when I got right with the Lord in Brother Runyon's church, I looked around and I thought that all of the believers in the church were perfect and that I was the only one that was damaged goods. I felt like, you know, you ever went to a... Um, to a, a dented can store 
where they, they, they used to sell dented cans. I don't think they do it anymore because they found out that it makes people sick and they die. You're going to go home and throw out all your dented cans. No, the, the dented cans that have been around a while. And so I remember going to dented can stores and you'd see all these cans on the shelf and they'd all have a dent in them. Now supposedly inside the product was good, but on the outside they couldn't sell it for retail. They were damaged goods. I, I looked, I felt like I was a dented can in the middle of all of these perfect cans. I mean, I felt not only did the can of my life have a dent in it, but the label was a little bit tore off and a little bit dirty. And I looked around and I thought everybody else was like right straight from the factory. And then I found out that wasn't true. I found out that everybody in the church house is a dented can. Every one of us have the same struggles. Now, some some people... Uh, they do better at winning some of those struggles than others. But listen, we're all cut out of the same cloth and we all have a hard time doing the right thing. Now, some people just have an easier time hiding it. Or their struggles are a little easier, a little more inconspicuous than another person's struggles. And then you have those that are deceived, and they just don't realize it. But the bottom line is we need to understand that everyone has a hard time doing right. Secondly, I want you to know that the truth that we need the most is usually understood the least. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 are so pivotal to living victorious Christian lives. And I find that the average Christian, about all they know out of Romans 6, 7, and 8, is what they use in the Romans road as they try to lead somebody to Christ. Or perhaps maybe they know Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Maybe they know that because that's been an important verse for them to hang on to. But I got news for you, Romans 6, 7, and 8 are the key to living a Christian life the way that God wants us to. And so the first part of our message today is we're going to talk about sin and the law. And we find a lot of information about sin and the law in verses 1 through 13. And so let's let's dive into the first thing in verses 1 through 4. And I want to ask you a question that is a really good question. And that is this, did Christ come to assist us in keeping the law? You know, there are there are many Protestant religions today that whether or not they have this as part of their doctrinal statement, the average Protestant church that you go to, this is kind of what the attender or the church member kind of summarizes as the purpose of Christ. Well, I'm, I'm trying to be a good person, and, and I'm speaking on, on their behalf, or at least what I observe and what I hear from those, is that I'm trying to be a good person, and hopefully when I die, my good works will outweigh my bad works, and that Jesus came to just help me with my good works, so that they'll outweigh my bad works, and then I can get to heaven. That is so common among professing Christians to have that mentality 
about why Jesus came. They kind of view it like uh, when I was in high school, I, I remember they, they came out in, in the gym. I played basketball in uh, freshman and sophomore year in high, high school, and I remember coming into the gymnasium and seeing this little, about this big around trampoline. How many of you have ever seen one of those before? And I thought, wow, that's weird. Boy, if you're going to jump on that, you better make sure that you're going straight up and down or you're going to get get hurt. And then I found out that that little trampoline was for training purposes, you know, to build the spring in your legs and so forth. And of course, uh, every one of us figured out that not only is it good for training, but it also, uh, we can jump on it and we can slam dunk a basketball. The first time I did that, I thought, whoa, you know, you're flying in there, slam dunk. And then you realized, if I didn't have the legs to get up here, I may not have the legs to land. (laughs) So you land and it's like, ow, that hurt. But you know, that trampoline is there to assist you in what you're doing. And a lot of people think that that's why Jesus came is just to kind of assist us and help us do what we were having a hard time doing. As we read verses 1 through 4, let me go ahead and answer the question. The answer to the question is absolutely no. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't assist us in keeping the law. I'm saying that that's not the purpose or the primary reason that he came. Verse number 1, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man." You know, I see here clearly that you can't have the approach that I want Jesus and I want to try to keep the law and do good and be good. They don't mix. And then in verse number four, wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You know, if you, if you really carefully look at this passage, it also makes it clear that to the Old Testament saint, I'm talking about before the cross of Christ, that their salvation had something, the law played a part in their salvation. Now, I'm working on a message that I hope to preach in two or three, maybe four weeks. And that's on dispensational salvation. There's a lot of confusion in Christianity today as to how did someone in Old Testament times get saved. And so we'll address that. But you know, if you really look closely at verse 1 through 4, then Paul's making it clear that prior to Christ dying on the cross, that the believer had a relationship with the law that had to die before they could have that relationship with Christ. How about Romans 10, verse number 4, where Paul said, For Christ 
is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. So obviously, before Christ, the law was part of the Old Testament saints' righteousness. But when Christ died, that was the end. And I think that that's a very important truth that we understand and believe as Christians. Now, this truth is especially important to the Jewish believer. However, we find that it's applicable to all believers, Jew and Gentile alike. Consider Romans chapter number 6 and verse number 11, where Paul says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. That word reckon, you suppose Paul was a southerner? Well, I reckon he was. He said reckon. What what does it mean to reckon? That means to count it as so. You know, there are a lot of things that we don't see and we don't touch, but we reckon it to be so. We believe it, and we believe it so much that we actually do things based on that. You know what? I reckon, I reckon that the stock market is always ultimately going to grow. That's why I put my retirement investment in different mutual funds. Now, I know that some are going to go, some are going to crash, some are going to, you know, you're going to have bull markets and bear markets, and you're going to have all kinds of fluctuations. But as a general rule, history has proven that if you invest in something and you keep your money in it long enough, you may, you may have money that Increases in value and then drops and then goes up. But whether it's real estate, whether it's businesses, whatever the economic investment is, we see that it ultimately recovers and it ends up growing. Why is that? I've always said this. There's one thing that you can count on when it comes to the stock market. Greed. You say greed's a bad thing. Not if you're handing your money over to someone that's going to get a portion of it and they're going to invest it for you. You're counting on the fact that they're greedy and they want more money. And so that's going to mean that you're going to make more money. But there's going to be times where even greedy people are going to make major mistakes. And that's why investments, listen, you don't want to put your money in anything that has very high risk if you don't have very much time before you need your money back. That's just common sense. And so reckon yourself, you you invest in those things because you reckon that your money's gonna grow. So you don't you don't just believe something that's fabricated out of the air. You've got some track record, you've got some truth, you've got some substance And then you do something with that. And that's what Paul's saying, that we should reckon ourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Um, Who was it years ago, I think that it was Nancy Reagan that had the campaign, uh, just say no to drugs. Am I right? Was it Nancy Reagan? Just say no. Well, Well, I got news for you. Saying no is okay, but it's not enough. It's not enough. It's kind of like, uh, and I know I've told this story before, if you go to the Middle East, when we were in Egypt, 
and uh, we were seeing the pyramids, and we went into the museum, and uh, the tourist traps. And outside of every tourist trap, whether it be in Mexico or Egypt or Israel, you had people out there that were selling their souvenirs and their trinkets and their gizmos. And you know what? They are not people that care about whether you like them or not. They were people that the only thing they cared about was getting money out of your pocket and into theirs. And so you'd walk by and they, they, they go, sir, 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 come, 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 let me show you, let me show you. And, and you'd say, no, thank you. That's what we would do in America. No, thank you. Be polite. And we would think that they would say, oh, that person's so polite. I think I'll leave them alone. Oh, no, 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 no. That means that they just engaged you. They just got your attention. And so you said no politely, and to them, wow, you just egged them on big time. Oh, come on, come on, come on, I make you a good deal. Come on, five dollar, five dollar, I make you a good deal. And they will not give up as long as you are responding to them. And I had to learn that you just, you don't say no, you don't respond, you don't even look at them. You just be rude and impolite, and you just walk by as if they're not even there. Guess what? That's the secret to having some victory over sin. We reckon ourselves to be dead unto it. Temptation comes knocking. I don't hear nothing. We just stay busy serving God, and we keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and we don't worry. Why, Why would you... Why would you answer a dead person? Well, if somebody, if, if, a, if a dead person came to your door and knocked on it, what would you do? Oh, let's have them in for supper. No, you wouldn't. You'd run out the back door if you have any sense. I, I, I never did understand the, and this time of year, Halloween is just a few weeks away, right? And so, so regardless of what you're your tastes and convictions are on TV programming. You can't watch anything in the month of October that's not gory and spooky and just weird. And and you know what's interesting? I lived a wicked life as a saved teenager for four, almost five years of my life. You know, I didn't like that stuff back then. I I, I would be with my buddies and they put on that those gory, like Halloween and Friday the 13th. And it's like, I'd leave the room. That would just knot up my gut. And it wasn't because I was a fraidy cat. I believe that all that stuff is so satanic. If you got the spirit of God living inside of you, how in the world could you find that entertaining whatsoever? And so programming is just filled with that kind of stuff. And, and the amazing thing about all of those movies and, and, and stories and narratives, it's like, why don't they leave? You know what? It, it it wouldn't matter how many years I owed on my mortgage. If I if I came into my house one afternoon after work, and I heard, "Get out," you know what I'd do? I'd get out <laughs> because I'm not stupid. <laughs> it's crazy stuff. Oh my. My daughter just got sucked into the TV. What do we do? <laughs> you get out. 
somebody dead comes knocking on your front door, what are you going to do? You're not going to invite them in. You're going to get as far away as you can. And that's what we need to understand, that our old nature, our born identity, is a dead man. We were crucified with Christ. And it's a wonderful truth. And I'm not going to pretend like I understand every detail about it. I just know that it's true because I've got the Word of God that says it's true. And so I've got to start learning how to reckon myself to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, look at uh, verse number 12 on the screen. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over ye, you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Listen, if you are listening to me today, and you have struggled and battled with sin only to fail, and you think that the solution to my failure, the solution to my giving in to my temptation is to quit coming to church and to get away from God, listen, you are not under the law anymore. You're dead to it. I'm not saying that you're not going to reap what you sow, but I'm saying that you are not Listen, the righteous judge still loves you and wants you where you need to be. That's the blessing of being saved. When Jesus Christ saved us, the Bible says in 1 John, He cleanseth the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Well, you don't know what I've done, preacher. No, but God does. And yet He doesn't. How about that? He still looks down at his children and he sees us. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees us as dead and then buried and then resurrected. He looks at us as resurrected from the dead. We're not under the law, but rather we are under grace. Now look at verse number 5. It says, For when we were in the flesh... The motions of sins which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. What does it mean to be in the flesh? In the flesh. Now physically speaking, uh, we're always in the flesh. Uh, someone, someone said, you know, someone was in a church service and some people started really rejoicing and getting really crazy and said, well, that was just in the flesh. Well, I hope so. I, I, I hope that somebody's spirit and soul didn't depart from their body. I hope that this wasn't like some kind of exorcism or something. Yeah, in the flesh, we are bound into this body until the day that we die. But the term in the flesh in verse number 5 is not talking about our soul and our spirit being, uh, being um, housed in this physical uh, body. It's talking about the nature that we were born with. Before salvation, the law of God could only bring death. 
And by the way, this in the flesh, we're talking about our true identity. This is our born identity. This is how we come into this earth, that we are we are under the law, and the law is something that can only bring forth death. Notice that verse number 5 talks about the motions of sins. The motions of sins. What exactly is this kind of a motion? It is an inward prompting or impulse or an inclination. You know, if you've ever grown a garden, I'm sure that at some point you've probably had the time where you bought a certain kind of seed and you planted it and something else came up, something got put in the wrong package, it got labeled wrong, and what grew was not what the label said that it was. Do you know why? Because every seed has its own nature. And what the nature of that seed is, is what's going to grow. And in the same way, we have a natural born identity as sinners. And you can, listen, you can try to train You can try to train your green beans to be potatoes. And it's just not, it's just not going to work. Or you can try to train your potatoes to be green beans. Well, I got these potatoes growing. I'm going to stake them all up. And, uh, you know, look, you can look under the leaves every day. You're never going to see any green beans hanging down. Why? Because it's a potato plant. And so it's not just about learning right from wrong. It's also about our nature and our identity. Now, this next quote, I, this is, I found this so interesting. I stumbled across this a couple weeks ago while I was preparing one of my messages. Some of you have heard of John Chrysostom. He is known as one of the early church fathers. He lived from 347 to 407 A.D., uh, whether or not I, I would, I, you know, he had some things that he preached and taught that were pretty decent. And he also had some things, uh, I guess to make a bottom line, they call him St. Christostom. And he is, uh, he is very highly regarded by the Greek Orthodox Church. And he's fairly highly regarded by the Roman Catholic Church. So obviously there are some things about his teaching and his life that we would take issue with. But he did have, interestingly enough, he had a testimony that very much appeared that he was a saved man. Now keep in mind, you go back to 300, uh, you know, 300 AD, early 400s, there was a lot of thing about church and Christianity that was all in flux. And, it, you know, there was a lot of things that led up to the Dark Age. You had the uh, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea, and you had, you know, pagan Rome that was merging with Christian Rome, and you had all kinds of strange, weird practices that were amalgamating together. And the Bible talks about that in uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus' admonition to the churches, but we don't have time for that today. But here is what Chrysostom said that I thought was pretty interesting. He said this, Long after the theater is closed and everyone has gone away, those images of shameful women, actresses, still float before your soul. Their words, their conduct, their glances, their walk, their positions, their excitation, their unchaste limbs... 
And there within you she kindles the Babylonian furnace in which the peace of your home, the purity of your heart, and the happiness of your marriage will be burnt up. Now that's some pretty eloquent words talking about condemning the theater of Chrysostom's day. You think about the theater today compared to then. I think we'd have to agree that the standard, we've changed the label of the seeds, but the seeds are still what they are. How much worse is it today? And so these motions of sins, these inclinations, it doesn't matter how you normalize a sinful behavior in a culture, there's still something deep in the heart of man. This inclination is a gravitational force toward doing wrong. We, um, we used to go camping quite a bit in Idaho. And, uh, you know, I, I've done some backpacking. I sold my backpack in a yard sale yesterday. And I've, I've, been, key, I've hang on, been hanging on to it for, wow, for 30 plus years. And I finally realized that at my age, I'm probably not going to be packing up into the woods and sleeping in a tent. Just probably not going to happen anymore. So I sold my backpack. But we used to go up and we'd have to set up a tent. And sometimes, you know, you'd have to put that tent on somewhat uneven ground. And if you've ever slept in a sleeping bag on uneven ground, you have discovered that there is an inclination, a gravitational force that will move on you no matter what you do. I've tried, you know, you, you do it side hill and you think, okay, I'm going uh, I'm to sleep next to the, the person and they're going to keep me from sliding or rolling downhill and, and you both wake up all at the bottom of the tent. And so you think, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll just put our head uphill and our feet downhill. And what do you do? You all end up in a ball at the bottom of the tent or at the door of the tent. It's just no matter what you do, gravity is going to move you in a particular direction. Doesn't matter where you're from. You know, there are gravitational sinful forces that have, that are different among gender. As a general rule, as a general rule, a male is going to have a temptation toward pornography more than a female. Uh, as a general rule, a female is going to have a bigger temptation toward gossip and backbiting than a male will. And that doesn't mean that there isn't some crossover. That doesn't mean, that, hey, I've known some men that were really big gossips. And, uh, and I've heard that in this day and age that perversion is so bad that there are actually females that are addicted to pornography. You know, those are not necessarily along gender line natural things, but sin nature is what it is. And regardless of what that gravitational pull is, your sin might not in our culture seem to be as sinful, but God doesn't look at sin the same way that we do in our culture. Remember how the law did not create the problem? It manifested the problem that was already there. And that's the way we've got to understand the law of God. That's why we cannot 
make ourselves righteous by keeping the commandments of God. Because if we know the commandments of God, we're going to realize that we're failing. You know, the, the first commandment says that we're supposed to, um, that, that God's supposed to be first, right? We don't worship any other gods. And yet, we struggle with that, every single one of us, making little gods in our life. Usually, the big God in most people's life is numero uno, ourself. We put ourself on the throne of our life. And also, we need to understand that the law is not an impersonal list. Have you ever... I'm not a big... Um, a big sign person as far as rules and do's and don'ts. Have you ever been into a place of business or even a church where everywhere you look, there's a sign that says, don't do this, don't do that? I mean, you go into the restroom and there's a big sign there, don't flush this, don't flush that. Or a sign that says, please make sure that you flush. That's all good ideas, don't you agree? You know, and then you, you turn around and the sign on the back of the door says, Wash your hands. Uh, that's a good idea. Then you, you, you go out, and it, you know you know how it is. Everywhere you look, there's a sign. I, I was at one place here not uh, several years ago, and a, a sign over the commode says, "Please jiggle the handle after you flush, so that the water won't run." And I'm thinking it took you more trouble to make the sign than it would be to fix the commode, right? Well, the, the law of God is not an impersonal list of do's and don'ts. It's a very personal list. And it is the demands of a holy, all-knowing, personal God. Romans chapter 8, verse number 9 says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of his. Listen, as believers, we are not living under a list of do's and don'ts because we are no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. And by the way, I don't know what the charismatics do with this verse. The ones that teach that you get saved and then you have to add the Holy Ghost to your life. Hey, the Bible says if you don't have, and by the way, the Holy Ghost and the Spirit of Christ are synonymous you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you're not saved to begin with. And so always remember, when God says to be filled with the Spirit, He's not talking about us getting more of Him. He's a person. He's not a quantity. He's not talking about us getting more of Him. He's talking about Him getting more of us. Don't, don't stick Him in the closet of your life. Let Him have full run of the entire house. And that's what being filled with the Holy Spirit is. Look with me at verse number 6. It says, But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve um, in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The beauty of salvation is that now Christ lives in us. And while we still have those old inner impulses, we now have some new inner impulses. I didn't recognize them very well when I was a backslidden Christian in my high school years. I was saved, and I shared this testimony just the other day, and I was saved, and when I'd get around all of my buddies, and we'd be 
participating in sinful behavior, I never felt like I really fit in. I always felt like I was pretending to be like them when down deep I really wasn't. And, and I didn't recognize at the time that it was the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me. And, and, and some of those impulses, there were times when I would say no to something that was sinful. Or I would only go so far. And it's like there was an invisible hand that was always trying to push me back in the right direction or put up a roadblock. And I was always, I always felt like that my sin life, there was an invisible force that kept thwarting things. And sometimes I'd think it was bad luck. But I was a fool. That wasn't bad luck. That was the blessings of God keeping me from sinful behavior that would have done nothing but just add more guilt, shame, and sorrow and more things that I'd have to bear in my life for the rest of my life. And so he lives within us and he brings inner impulses rather than outward do's and don'ts. And by the way, these impulses are developed as we learn to apply his word and do his will. If you ever feel like that, well, my impulse to do wrong is stronger than my impulse to do right, there's a real simple answer for that. You're not developing that inner man. You're not learning how to apply his word and to do his will. Let me say this. I speak from experience. Learning to do his will is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not a 60-40 proposition. Well, you know, I think I'll do the will of God 60% of my life. That's more than, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Let me say this. If you think you're doing, I'm doing what I know is right 95% of the time, then you're not doing God's will. 99.9, you're not doing God's will. Listen, I'm not saying that 99.9 isn't better than 60. You'll probably have less negative things to reap what you sow. But until we from our heart say, I want all of God's will, the power of those impulses to sin will never be completely broken they will, they will always find a root, and as soon as you let your guard down, they'll just spring right back up. Why? Because it is learning to do the will of God and following the Word of God in which those impulses to do right continue to get stronger and stronger and stronger. Romans chapter number 8, verse number 4, says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Notice it doesn't say fulfilled by us. Once again, Jesus isn't just helping us to obey the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly, and now he lives inside of us. And what we have to do is we've got to quit walking after the flesh, and we've got to start walking after the Spirit. Look with me at verse number 7. I have to hurry this morning. Verse number 7 says... What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except the law had said, 
thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Once again, folks, the law reveals our original nature. Notice that word concupiscence that we just read. It's kind of, you know, we're doing archaic word studies on Wednesday night, and concupiscence would be kind of one of those archaic words, but it's a great word that describes something that we need to understand. What exactly is concupiscence? Well, it's simply, uh, it's, uh, I lost my place on my notes. It is a strong desire for that which is wrong. Try this little test sometime. If you've got kids, 9, 10, 11 years old, put a box in the middle of the living room, have the lid closed, and uh, say, listen, uh, Johnny, Sally, uh, I'm going to the store. I'll be back in about an hour. Don't look in that box. What do you think is going to happen? There's a good chance that as soon as you're out of the driveway, Johnny's going to look in that box. Now, if you'd left the box in the middle of the living room, Johnny would have walked all around it, probably tripped on it, and just ignored it. Johnny wouldn't have thought about, oh, I think I'll clean up the living room. Let's put it over here. Johnny wouldn't even thought about that. He would have totally ignored it. But when you said, don't look in that box, all of a sudden, concupiscence kicks in. And while the law of God is holy and righteous and all of the commandments are good, this nature, I think what the picture I'm trying to point, paint for all of us here today is that our nature is really in bad shape. And this idea that we can be good without Jesus Christ or that Jesus is just helping us be good, that notion is, it just doesn't fly with the Bible description of who we are. We are filled with concupiscence. And knowing right from wrong does not produce righteousness. Now look with me at verse number 12. Verse number 12, it says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. The law awakens the human conscience. Most people, most people are sound asleep or have drowsy consciences. And that's why preaching is so important. You know, the, the old fundamentalist preacher that uh, was always just preaching, they, they call them hellfire and damnation preachers. I mean, they're always just rough on sin. You know, they always got a bad rap. But most people don't realize that that serves a good purpose. 
that at least it awakens the consciousness to sinful behavior. You may not like it, and it may not always be done in a Christ-like spirit, but let me tell you something. The law and the commandments of God and righteousness, that kind of preaching will awaken the conscience. And your people are pretty sound asleep this day and age. Here, um, three or four days ago, we were all tired, and while we were sitting in the living room, Anna and my wife, they fell asleep. And uh, there are certain audible reasons that I know that they were asleep. <laughs> Trying to be very careful here. Well, so I, I, I said, hey, hey, ladies, it's time, let's go to bed. Let's, let's get up, let's go to bed. Well, Anna wakes up, she's always woke up pretty easily. And uh, my wife, bless her heart, I, I couldn't get her wake, to wake up. And uh, I said, honey, honey, so you know how it is, you raise your volume a little bit. And listen, I didn't want to startle her. Because if I startle her, then bad things happen. <laughs> I, I didn't want her to get grouchy. Like the guy that was asked one time, did you wake up grouchy this morning? He said, no, I let her sleep. <laughs> this isn't one of those situations. But, you know, I'm, I'm raising the volume, and so even, even Anna's helping out, and she, you know, puts her hand on mom, mama, mama. She was, she was sound asleep. I mean, my goodness, I couldn't get her woke up until finally she, you know, Anna touched her arm a little bit, and I said, honey, time to wake up, and finally, you know, she woke up. She wasn't taking a nap, she was taking a coma. (laughs) And, And you know, spiritually speaking, folks, a lot of God's people are asleep. Their conscience is asleep. And many, they really only want to go to enough church to wake up their conscience and then go back to sleep. I, I, this, this was an interesting thing that I did. Uh, the other, uh, yesterday morning, I guess, uh, I'm not a big snooze button person. I usually wake up, bef- if I set an alarm, I usually wake up before my alarm. Well, we had a yard sale and, um, Friday and Saturday, and so, you know, you're, you're lugging boxes and you're going up and down stairs and you're carrying this out. Well, I worked, Physically, I, over two days, I guess you, you end up doing more physical work than you realize because it's just ongoing. And so Saturday morning, we got to bed late that night, I think about one, and I had the alarm set for six. And normally, even with four or five hours sleep, I'd wake right up and get up, but I hit that snooze button about three times. And, and it was one of those where you reach over and you push the button and it always, I don't know what it is about nine minutes. Have you ever noticed that snooze buttons are always nine minutes? Why is that? Well, nine minutes, and you know what? I'd hit the button, and I'd, I'd go right back to my dream, pick right up where I left off. And it'd go off. Nine minutes later, I'd hit the button, and I'd pick. It was, this was like a three-part miniseries. <laughs> like, that never happens. Three times I hit the snooze button until it's finally it's like, oh, wow, I got to get up. We got people coming. I got to get this yard sale set up. And, and I got to thinking about, you know, that snooze button, 
I, I, I got my calculator out and I did a little bit of math. Do you know that nine minutes, that's the amount of a snooze time, nine minutes out of a day is almost exactly the same percentage of a day that one hour in church is out of a week. How about that? I'm not saying that there's anything profound or providential in that. I just found it interesting that some Christians, one hour in church is like hitting the snooze button. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm awake, but now I'm going back. I'm just not going to be awake very long here. Conclusion. Why is it so hard to do right? Well, folks, before we can do right, we've got to get right. I tried many, many times to do right without getting right. And I got news, it never, ever works. No one will repent until they fully, completely realize their need. Remember John the Baptist, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Pharisees, in Matthew 3, verse 7 through 8, they all came out to him. And you know what he said to him? He said, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Hey, John, how are you going to build a large ministry that way? John wasn't trying to build a large ministry. He was just trying to faithfully do what God told him to do. Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. Before we can do right, we've first got to get right. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, and I highly recommend that you do, not the, uh, not the modern version, but the, just the old original version. In Pilgrim's Progress, it demonstrates the inner conflict in Christian soul. He had been warned to flee from the city of destruction. And he found it very difficult to flee from that city. Why? Because he had become aware of this huge burden on his back. And here he's trying to flee the city and he can't hardly move because of that burden. He gets stuck in the slew of despond. He gets stuck in in this battle between his mind and between his friends and his family and all these things he's struggling with as he's bearing this burden. And nobody that supposedly cared for him seemed to even notice his burden. But he was very, very conscious of that burden. What was that burden? It was the burden of sin that comes by the law. Listen, he carried it. He knew it. His conscience was awake. You ever noticed how that in today's culture, seven, eight months ago, someone said, beware of the virus. And the whole world responded. God's men have been preaching for 2,000 years the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And the world just keeps walking by, oblivious. What's the problem, folks? The problem is before we can get right, before we can do right, we've got to get right. And to get right, we've got to recognize what our true nature and identity is. We are sinners. 
And on our very best day, we try to do good. We may do good. And the end result is we become proud and we become self-sufficient. We cannot win in the flesh. But Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. And he didn't just do it as an example. He didn't just do it to inspire us. He didn't just do it to assist us. He did it because God knew that what Adam lost in the Garden of Eden had to be restored inside of us, and we needed to become perfectly holy and righteous, and the only way that we become that is by receiving the one who was that and is that, the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who are we? We are sinners in need of a Savior. And the first step in discovering our true identity is recognizing that fact that in the flesh, by the law of God, all it does is reveal what we truly are on the inside. Next week, we're going to talk about how to have victory over this old nature. And boy, the answer is always found at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ.